We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Dr. Serena McCalla, fondly referred to as Dr. M, a science strategist at iResearch Corporation, an organization which she founded. Serena has dedicated her life to advancing science and science education while working with the nation's most promising youth. Dr. McCullough was raised in New York City and fell in love with science as an elementary school student. Dr. McCullough has earned numerous awards for teaching and mentoring. Her students have won virtually all STEM competitions that are publicly accessible regionally, nationally, and internationally. She also participated as a principal subject in the National Geographic documentary, Science Fair. This film chronicles the importance of science fairs in the high school learning experience. It was premiered in the 2018 Sundance Film Festival and won the festival's first ever overall festival favorite. The documentary also earned additional awards like the Academy Emmy Award. Serena has recently won the National Geographic Wayfinder Award in May 2023. I can't wait to hear more about that. What I appreciate most about you, Serena, is your unique combination of determination and grace. You are a winner and a learner. Welcome to ROG, Serena. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here today. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you're here too. So I'd love for you to share a little bit of your background. Okay. Well, I grew up in uh, Queens, New York, and I'm a child of immigrants. My mom from Jamaica and my dad's um, family is from Panama. We had a really strong foundation in regards to my parents believed and encouraged that education would remove us from an environment that didn't have the resources of the majority of people living in the United States or, you know, at least people in our community. So they were really encouraging in regards to our education. We went to Catholic school, which is a true struggle for my parents. And then, of course, I went on to undergrad, got my master's and my doctorate degree which is kind of a shift from my initial goals of becoming a medical doctor. I thought I was going to become an ER physician, but sometimes your path, you know, shifts and takes you in a different direction, which is fine. And I ended up really falling in love with research and thinking that that became the next iteration of my life. That's incredible. So here you went to Binghamton University, right? You had a double major biological science and African-American and African studies. And your intention was, you know, here you were like, even as a elementary school student, loving science and then thinking, okay, I want to become an ER physician. And so then you're saying I learned to love research. Like what was the, what was the catalyst there? Well, to be honest, I didn't know much about research as a young student. I believe that if you love science, that meant you were going to go into medicine. I really didn't understand that there were other disciplines that I could, you know, 
dabble into and maybe even try out until I got to college. A friend of mine who was also on, on the path of becoming a physician said to me that he was conducting research for one of the professors at Binghamton. And I was like, wait, what's, what's that about? And then he explained to me um, what he was doing. And he suggested that I take a summer and attend a research program at Case Western Medical College and work with a researcher. So I ended up doing that. I worked with a researcher at Case Western and fell in love with Alzheimer's research and cellular molecular biology and how at the micro level and, and even smaller, at the nano level, we are such a dynamic organism, human beings. And I've always loved the biology of of life, right? And as a result of that experience, I said, wow, this research is fantastic. And I kind of fell out of love with medicine. Then I really started thinking about maybe I should do something in regards to research. And that kind of started me on the path of what else I could do besides becoming a medical doctor. Wow. Oh my gosh. What an incredible story. And I also think your father played an important role here. Tell me a little bit about him. Yes. (laughs) One of the things when I was a kid, my father used to always, you know, I think he probably was sick of me asking him all the time, what is this? What is this? Can you tell me about this? What's going on here? Why is the lizard, you know, hard while a gecko is soft? And my parents kind of promoted this idea of giving us scholastic magazines or National Geographic magazines. So of course that made me ask more questions and he would be like, I'm not answering you, go figure it out. And it was probably at the time extremely frustrating, but one of the greatest gifts I've ever received because it showed me that I should take initiative to take, you know, a part in my learning process. And I actually use that tool now with all of the students that I work with that I train them, you know, you can find big answers. You can find the answers to these big questions you're asking. And it all honestly stemmed from how I was brought up, that my father wouldn't answer my questions. And I was so inquisitive. I needed to know. So I went and found the answers. And I think my students are highly capable of doing the same. And that's part of my teaching modality that I ask them a million questions, but I almost never answer them, even if I have the answers. (laughs) I love that. And that's one of the things that I've learned from you is how to put it back on the person and trust that they are smart and capable and they can go find the answer. And then I also like how that has helped you to learn. So that's what I mean about like your determination and your grace and humility is that you're always open to learning and you expect that these students are going to teach you something and you treat them like peers. So I do think that you have an unconventional an unfortunately rare teaching style. I mean, how would you describe your teaching style? I definitely think I am an innovator in regards to how I approach education. I think that we are actually stifling kids to some extent in the classroom because it's so rigid, you know, it's and it's so focused on standardized testing and whether or not they're reaching a certain bar. I don't think all students come in on the same playing field. And I especially don't think that we are challenging the gifted kids enough. I feel like the gifted kids are always left to the wayside. We definitely focus a lot of time and energy on the kids who need extra help, which of course, that's important that we do that. But I also feel like it's extremely important for us to spend that time on those kids who are not a typical student who just learns from 
chalk and talk, but that a student that has these great ideas and just needs someone to kind of support them and bring in those ideas to fruition. I think that that's the biggest problem we have right now in education, that the greatest of the minds in the room sometimes are not the teachers, but actually these students who have thought of something that we may think is crazy, but is truly impactful and can truly change how we look at, you know, environmental sciences, physics, astronomy, genetics, cancer. And and I don't think enough people are giving the students the opportunity to shine. Yeah. And, you know, in the documentary, and I'm so excited to talk about the series that's that just launched this week. So by the time our listeners hear this episode, the science fair, the series will be well underway. Uh, but in, in the documentary science fair, there's a character named Robbie who has a teacher who does not have the same kind of philosophy and was like, you know what, Robbie, why don't you just stick to your homework and read the thing that I asked you to read? And then I saw a clip of the two of you talking about what would have it been like had he been one of your students. I just would love for you to just speak to those who understand what you're saying and could maybe take a page out of your book. I love Robbie. I met Robbie after the National Geographic launched like a a launch party. And that's when I first met him. So they kind of built the documentary science fair in sections based upon the location of where they were filming. So I never met him in person during the taping, but after the film was released, I met him and we had a conversation and he was like, oh, you would have hated me if I was in your class. And I said, actually, Robbie, I wouldn't have. The difference would have been that I would have focused you. I would have allowed you to follow your passions and to do the phenomenal work that he ended up completing you know, but I would have also challenged you to also be a great student by doing some of the tools and tasks and foundational things that a student needs to do in order to succeed. I don't want to disrupt education by saying everything we've done in the past is wrong, but I definitely think that in 2023, 2024, and moving forward, we need to look at how we're training our students. And I think that we're still using practices from a hundred years ago that no longer work in this fast-moving, digital, virtual, in-person, lack of outside <laughs> classroom, you know? And, and Robbie is a, is a prime example of a student that was truly capable and probably, you know, on the level of gifted, but w- didn't have support. And if he just had someone, and, and, and not that his parents didn't support him and love him, they just didn't know what he was doing. And when you find those kids, they need someone that gets them because that's the only way this world is going to move forward faster. We're moving at a snail's pace compared to what's available out there. And these these kids, (laughs) these kids are going to change the world if we let them or they won't because we stop them. Exactly. I love that. And, you know, one of the quotes that you're famous for saying is if you can dream it, complete the work and make your dream reality. So say more about that, Serena. It is definitely the foundation on which I stand. My students, everyone thinks when I used to work with Jericho that it was because they were all brilliant and they they moved from far and wide to work with me. No, I have students at my iResearch corporation I research institute that maybe are not the top of their class, but they're also achieving some of the same outcomes 
as my Jericho students. And they're doing that because they're being well-trained. This idea of being successful in science is not by accident, it's by practice. So I train my students that if you want to be successful, you have to do the work. You have to read the literature. You have to answer the hard questions. You have to ask hard questions. And then you have to be okay with maybe not being successful. Failing is not a bad thing if you show when you fail that you learned something. So to me, failing is just another way of learning. And then we pick ourselves up and we keep going. And that's why my students are successful. It's definitely not just because of the resources available to them, because I've worked with students who don't have those levels of resources and they're still very successful. So it's definitely about a mindset. How much are you going to put in to get the outcome that you hope to achieve? It's very growth mindset, very empowering and agency driven. And it reminds me of the Nelson Mandela quote of the, I never lose, I either win or I learn. And I think you live that and you, you model that and you encourage that. It's so beautiful. Well, you mentioned the iResearch Corporation, which is the parent company of iResearch Foundation, iResearch Institute, iResearch yeah, Academy, and iResearch Science. Would love to hear you share you know, how that became a thing and you know, just what are those entities. It's kind of a great story. I used to go to science research competitions and help students who were not my students. And my students would get so upset with me that I was doing that. And they were like, Dr. McCalla, how are you helping our competition to beat us? And I said to them, if they can beat you by me working with them for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, then they should beat you. So they used to really get upset with me. And then after a while, they were just like, forget it. You know what? You're going to do it anyway. So they actually set up my first website, iResearch Science, so that I could give away tools to help kids learn more about the science research process. And then they built my second website during COVID um, for iResearch Institute so that we could now do research projects virtually. So iResearch Institute is a program where my students um, students come to me far and wide. I have students from Korea, China, Paris, London, of course, all of the United States that work with me during the summer when they're out of school. And we actually run um, data science, machine learning, AI, bioinformatics projects in um, over the internet virtually for the entirety of the summer. And these kids leave with phenomenal research projects that they use at competitions iResearch Academy is a year-long program, so I work with the students between um, eight and nine months. So it's a little slower paced than the Institute because the Institute is really all day, long work, hard work. Um, And the Academy is kind of cool because I get to see them grow over a longer period of time. And it's pretty amazing to see how much growth can occur in eight months, even with students who have no experience in research. So I love the academy, the iResearch Academy. And then, of course, our foundation was built on the back of giving back. I want students who are like me, who didn't have a lot of support, to be able to join my programs. And the foundation, the iResearch Foundation, allows people to donate so that we can, you know, support kids who are underrepresented to to join my programs. And to work with unbelievable. Me and what's your track record like? 
um, I got to say, we're pretty good. <laughs> In the upcoming Science Fair this series, every student that I mentored, either at Jericho or through our research corporation, won an award at the International Science and Engineering Fair in 2022. It blew my mind that every single kid won. Unbelievable. That's it. And so for those who are listening, who this is like a foreign topic, they haven't seen the documentary, they do not know what we're talking about. Do you have like a highlight reel of like, what, what what are these competitions, who attends, and what is the likelihood of someone winning? Okay, so the International Science and Engineering Fair, aka ISEF, is the world premier science research competition. It literally brings in students from all over the world. Um, Literally 80 countries attend and over 4,000 students and they all compete for top prizes. The top prize at ISEF is $75,000 and is a series of lower prizes that they give out throughout the entirety of the competition. And it's truly research driven. So all of the students who attend have conducted some sort of research project, either at their school or through a company like mine or other places in university lab settings. And then they take their research and present it to scientists in their field. It's an amazing experience. I wish that I would have known about it when I was in high school. I did not know about it, and I think I would have won. (laughs) And what's funny is all of the top schools, MIT, Harvard, Stanford, they're all there watching because they know that this is the collection of great science minds, and they want to pick those kids up and accept them to their university. So a lot of students participate because they know that it is a, a door opener those best those best of schools mm-hmm. in our country. That's unbelievable. And so with with all of those individuals competing and even just to be nominated to compete there is a whole series of, you know, steps they have to take. So then they get elected or what would you say like nominated? So it's so funny. In in the new series, um Science Fair the series, uh they mentioned that over 30 million students apply to their regional or, or national or statewide competition in order to be one of those 4,000 at ISEF. So globally, students participate in a regional fair and then the best of those regional, national, state fairs then are accepted to go to ISEF. So it's a huge cohort. While we're on this topic, and then I do wanna get into the Wayfinder Award, um, If you could, I mean, I don't know if this is like sharing your secret sauce, but like, what are some of the things that you have found in common with all of the students who have won these awards? Like, what are some of the, you know, uh, what would you call it? Like recipes for success? So here's my mantra. I think that the biggest issue in science is our inability to share our stories. A lot of scientists were very cerebral. A big part of our success is I've un- I understand that sharing science is difficult and that students need to understand that it's 50% how they sell their science and 50% their science. Scientists understand what they're doing. They can have a, a long conversation with their peers at a very high level and explain why what they're doing is impactful. But the key here, and that a lot lot of scientists don't do well, is to make the story um, applicable to the masses. 
So I train my students the 50-50 way. You can and you must understand the science principles. That is the foundation of what you're doing. You're a scientist, you're a researcher. But the other part is they're 50% storytellers. They are well-trained to be able to bring their story from beginning, middle to end. And that's part of why I think we beat everybody. We're phenomenal storytellers and we love and understand our science. That is so beautiful. Thank you for that. And so you have just recently won another prestigious award, which is this National Geographic Wayfinder Award. We'd love to hear a little bit more about that and who are your peers there and what are you doing with that award? I have to be honest, that award is mind-blowing to me because, as I stated before, I've read National Geographic magazines from as long as I can remember. My family didn't have a lot, but what they would provide us with was educational tools. And National Geographics was one of those magazines that truly opened my eyes to the bigger world. And when I was named a Wayfinder, I actually thought they were calling me because my students won an award. So I was really, truly confused when they reached out to me. I thought that they were reaching out to me to tell me that one of my students were nominated for an award. And given me the inside information about that award. Long story short, you have to be nominated to become a Wayfinder and they basically research you and how they, 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 they follow you and look into your life and figure out what makes you worthy of becoming a National Geographic Explorer. And I didn't know this was happening. So about a year, they're looking at um, individuals who are nominated and then narrowing it down to 15 people internationally that are awarded the Wayfinder Prize. Um, and I happen to be one of the 15 people this year for 2023. And um, it has been mind-blowing because some of the people that won with me, like one gentleman in particular, his name is Mohammed, um, he is a two-time Pulitzer winner. And I'm like, we're in the same group, <laughs> like mind blown. I mean, we have people who are uh, well-known documentary filmmakers and photographers, um, storytellers, people making huge impacts with the NAACP were, that were in my cohort this year. And um, I'm truly honored to be in a class with those phenomenal human beings. Um, 15 people a year, again, mind-blowing. And of course, because I am a big fan of National Geographic, just to be called an explorer is my life full circle. You know, I, I never would have expected that those magazines when I was seven, eight years old, looking at them in my grandmother's basement, that I would now be one of them. So... Amazing. Oh my gosh. And talk to me about the lost Einsteins. Okay. So as a result of becoming a wayfinder, you're given a prize. And then behind giving that prize, they're also um, allowed to write a grant and um, National Geographic will award you up to $100,000 to bring your grant idea to fruition. So my idea is the lost Einsteins project. And my goal there is is to have teachers, not parents, because sometimes we're biased, but teachers recognize students who they think are exceptional. But I want students who are underrepresented and 
underserved um, to now have access to me. And I'm going to try to help them bring their project idea to fruition with some of my mentors. And then we're going to compete and give them prizes and let them use that prize money to attend, you know, the most prestigious competitions like ISAF. So my goal is now to find those kids who are like me that maybe did not know that ISAF is a thing to now expose them to what I didn't get exposed to because we don't need another generation in lack. We need another generation of change makers and wayfinders, you know, that are going to help make this world a better place and correct some of the mistakes that the adults have made for them. No doubt. Yeah, they're going to struggle. The next two generations, we've done a lot of wrongs and now we need them to fix some of the problems. And we have to recognize that those wayfinders are not just in a small group. They're all over the place and coming from a bunch of different mindsets and, and each of those minds collectively is what we need to change the world. Amen. That is so right on. And you know, your students are working on cutting edge research in all kinds of areas like environmental problems, disease, finance, suicide risk prevention, education. I mean, what else would you add to that list? Anything my students want to study, they can study. My big thing is that whatever they're doing, they're passionate about it. So we literally do projects in astronomy. We do projects in um, a lot of biomedical projects because I think the kids understand, especially with COVID, that we need scientists to figure out our next iteration of drugs and, and you know, antibiotics and vaccines and understanding the genetics of disease. Uh, a lot of my students work with bioinformatics projects. We have um, AI and machine learning. I mean, these kids are phenomenal coders and they have such great ideas that are going to change how we look at medicine and environmental sciences and climate. So um, we literally will do research on anything. As long as I can find a mentor to work with the student, um, we're like, yes, let's go. <laughs> so anything, any field of science, there's, um, you know, a hundred branches of science, anything they want to do, we'll do. I love it. And back to you being an unconventional educator, I think you leading with what are you passionate about? And that has no limits. Like, tell me what it is that you're passionate about. And then you, I, what I've heard you say is like, you basically do what your father did to you, which is you, you ask them questions back when they ask you questions, right? So Absolutely. sharing with our listeners about your, your approach. My Eye Research Institute and My Eye Research Academy kids, we have a love-hate relationship. I know they're like, Dr. M, just tell me the answer. No. <laughs> the answer is no. I'm not going to tell you the answer, but what I will do is guide you. So again, my students come to me, even in our application process, one of the first questions I ask them is, what is your passion? Why are you here? Why do you want to work with me? Why do you think that I can assist you to become a great scientist? And when they answer those questions and I read their responses, then I'm like geared up now to find somebody in their field to work with them. And then after we find someone to work with them, then I'm going to ask them to do the heavy lifting, which is I'm asking you to look into science at a level that a lot of people don't look at until they get into graduate school. So you have a large learning curve and we truly tackle the learning curve with questions. Every time we meet, 
we go through something that my kids coined my essential question reports. And again, my kids give me all of these names. I love them. Um, (laughs) And we do essential question reports, EQs. And with those EQs, I question them to death about everything that's going on and really stepwise build their knowledge base. And we start off, of course, very generally because they're high school students that probably don't understand, you know, past what they're taught in AP classes, which cover a lot of information and not really now are focused on a specific field. So we really start very generally and then we keep narrowing down and what I call the funnel effect of learning. So we use this funnel effect of learning and my students get the science and then we work on the cell. What is the funnel effect? Is there a simple way to describe it? The funnel effect is basically, it's a deductive reasoning process where you start with a very general or broad scope of information and then you stepwise, like the way a funnel is shaped, like a V, you stepwise narrow the knowledge base until you get to a very specific question. And at the very specific question, you now have this foundation of all of this other information to see why your question is important or pertinent to solving a problem. Mm, That's beautiful. Do you have any favorite questions? I'm a student of questions myself. Honestly, I'm a big how question girl. I want to know how it works. And then I follow that up with the why. You know, now that we know the how, why is it important to address your objectives? And, And again, it becomes a trend. How, why, how, why? And we continue that process until my students are so good that I can't ask a question that they don't know the answer to. Brilliant. And that's when I know we're going to win. And you've been self-described as a strict mentor, and I think you're alluding to that right now. What is your philosophy behind that? I think every student can learn. I think every student is capable of greatness in the scope of themselves. Now, my level, what I consider great for me may not be what you consider great for you. So I learn my students, I learn their peaks and their valleys, and I know, you know, how hard I can push and how hard um, I can't push. Um, So as we are working together, I understand that what I may deem as as an endpoint for one student is not the endpoint for another student. So not everybody's going to come in first place at ISEF. Not every person is going to become a Regeneron STS finalist. But if they now build confidence in themselves, they learn to become a great orator. If they now believe they can achieve a goal, that to me is winning too. It doesn't have to be that I won, you know, this competition and and now everybody knows my name in science and research. It has, winning is I have confidence I'm, I'm now able to, to learn something outside of the scope of a classroom that I'm now contributing to the world in some way. That to me is winning too. So I know that people look at me and, oh, she's always pushing them to win, but they may not know me. And that winning to me is not just getting a prize from one of these named competitions. It's the kid's confidence in the fact that when I meet them 10 years later, they still remember me and how they grew in my classes. In your care, right? And to me, it sounds a lot like identity. Like you're helping them to identify first as a scientist, as a thinker, and you've often referred to them as peers that they're going to be telling their story or 
pitching their idea or sharing their science with another scientist, right? Who's also a judge, but, but to see them more as a peer, I think that's just such a transformation of self-identity. It's so funny. I was speaking with someone earlier today and he was like, you know, I meet these kids in underserved communities and sometimes they don't even want to look at you. They're, they're almost afraid to talk. And that's really big for me that the kids find their space and they become, they become their own advocate and they become um, proud of themselves without needing someone to say to them, I'm proud of you because they may not get that. So part of my success is also, I think I build my kids up to be able to, to accept their strengths and their weaknesses and not be afraid of that because no one is perfect. And I always tell my kids that if you think that there's one person out there that knows everything, you've met the, the person who knows the least in the room because no one knows everything. So th- I don't expect them to know it all. You know, and I, and I said it, part of being intelligent is that you're able to say, I don't know. And to say, you know, I need help. It, it's OK to ask for help. It's OK to not know. It's OK to fail. It's it, These are all of the things that in traditional classrooms, I think that we're we make kids afraid of, of acknowledging. A- and we can't because that's reality. As adults, we fail. It's OK. <laughs> Life doesn't end. Totally. Yes, absolutely. So the National Geographic TV Disney Plus docuseries released in December 2023 called Science Fair of the Series. What can you share with us about it? I love it. it. It starts off with this dramatic opening as per Nat Geo style. And it really walks you through some of the struggles that the kids are facing in real life and then how they use science to kind of bolster their their self-worth and share their passions again with the world. So it, it really is an entertaining, fun, um, and a little science-heavy, um, in, in a good way, um, experience about a bunch of kids from all over the globe who are aiming to attend the International Science and Engineering Fair. And of course, Jericho and my students and myself, we're, we're in the beginning um, series episode one, and um, it, it shows a little bit my strict side, but also if you can hear the students, that they also know that I love them and that I'm there just to make sure that they're achieving their goals. So it's it's a fun series, taking you again all over the world. There's kids from Zimbabwe, Puerto Rico, and, and they show Brazil and other countries and Russia and Sweden. Everyone from you know, interested in science and research all over the world are, are in that fair and, and being represented. So it's pretty fantastic in that series. Oh, thank you. I cannot wait to dive in. The documentary is exceptional and it's exactly what you said. It, 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 it raised my awareness to like this leveler of humanity. Like, of course, everyone wants to succeed, but everyone also wants to make a difference. It had a lot of ROG return on generosity, uh, in my mind from the mentors like you and the teachers to the, the, the colleagues, you know, even the individuals, like in one scene, somebody did not get nominated to ISEF and she went around and hugged her, her classmate and congratulated her because she had been nominated. So there's just, and then, and then that it's, it's a, 
it's a global thing, right? This it's a global effort, and it was just so unifying and beautiful. So I encourage everybody to watch it. So at the end of every episode, we look for some takeaway tips, some ways that our listeners can apply what they've learned to their own lives. And there's a lot in what you said, Serena. Um, and I would say one that really stands out for me is to find your passion. The way that you speak to your students about finding their passion, right? Everyone to find their passion. And I also liked how you said, share your story, right? Figure out like, what is your story and how can you share that in a compelling way to help people understand a little bit more about you, but also the thing that you're trying to convince them of. And then of course, the quote of anything is possible if you have enough passion and determination to put the work in to make your dreams a reality. Anything you would add to that, Dr. M? That was fantastic. I I think you kind of summarized my, my hope for the next generation of scientists. I just want the kids to do what they want to do and while doing so, benefiting the world. And, and it's so funny because we're so internet, interconnected. It, it, it's now not just, you know, where you live, what state you live in. Everything we do impacts the entire planet. So it's kind of phenomenal that um, these kids at, you know, ages 13 to 18 are able to see how their small piece can change the world on, on a large scale if, if, if really brought to fruition. So I'm excited for the next generation of scientists. These kids are giving me hope. Um, I'm seeing a lot of them also very eager to pay it forward. And when they're now working on their doctorates and building their businesses, that they're helping people and, and sharing um, what they were taught, which is you, no one's on an island. And it's part of our responsibility as being good humans to make sure that we're helping the next person up. And I'm, and I'm seeing that in my students and I'm really proud to know that um, I'm leaving a legacy of great minds behind. <laughs> yes, you are. Oh, I'm so grateful for you as a human, as a friend, and as a guest. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.